it was the path unpaved and the idea of moving to Los Angeles, um, trying something different and new. I always knew I could come back and, and go back to the Midwest if I so choose. And we did, I did right then and there, we, I decided in Skippers that I was going to pivot and, and go and move to Los Angeles. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond High Street. David Schwab with you again. Today on the pod, Cam Cummings. Tim is a colleague, peer, friend. We sit together on the entrepreneurship board at Miami with a number of other guests we've had on the pod too. He's the co-founder of Pivotal Growth Partners, owner of in-house marketing, has done some great stuff in his business career. The pod, I think, focuses on three or four different things. One, franchising. Cam has spent a lot of time the last 20 years in that space. He'll talk in the pod. You'll hear about helping Marco's Pizza go from about 100 stores to seven or 800 stores during his time and what he believes are keys to success in franchising, important for those that really care about that aspect of business. He lives in Chicago and we spend quite a bit of time of the power of Chicago and Miami and what we could all do to continue the success and have Miamians go down to Chicago and come back to Chicago with all the businesses there that are there and uh, how the school can benefit from that. We also have an interesting discussion about the unpaved path and why he did what he did at 21 and jumped out to Los Angeles instead of sticking around the Midwest and doing something more traditional. And in that uh, work, finding pain points and in your business career, and I guess professional, professionally and personally, figuring out pain points and then using that to evolve and achieve what's next for you, either at your existing workforce or workplace or moving on to the next job to pain point. Interesting part that we haven't talked about much. And I also loved his comment that he decided his business choice sitting over a drink at Skipper's. How good is that? We didn't talk about it in the pod, but afterwards, he wanted me to call out Daco, Doc Olson, a uh, favorite professor at Miami that taught him to be a hustler in a positive sense of the word, just outworking people, being better, forcing him to learn and study and research more. So shout out to Daco. I hope everyone loves the pod. I really did. Cam's a great guy. Have a good day. One, one of the biggest things about Miami and Chicago is that you know, the more people you go and meet from your friend group to their friend group and beyond that, um, you realize how powerful Miami is and not because of what you've, you've done and you say it's the response that everybody gives back to you when you're talking to them, like, where'd you go to college? And I say Miami, Ohio. And they're like, Oh my gosh, I have met more astonishing, outstanding and successful people that have come from that school. It's unbelievable. And they, and they go, into it ad nauseum. Like I, I know this individual, this individual, and they go down the line of the people they know. Um, and it you know, really makes you kind of proud in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of people that have left Miami ended up living in Chicago are friends with really, um, well accomplished, very successful people. And it's, it's put Miami on the map as a place that you go and, you know, people that are 30 to 60 have really come out of there with, uh, you know, their head on their shoulders, a great at, uh, work ethic, and, and made you know, success in all kinds of fields um, as it pertains to uh, you know their uh, corporate lives. But as as a uh, network of alum, it's you know it's amazing how many people you know that went to Miami that are 
10 years below you or 10 years above you. And and the more you go to alumni events or you're out with somebody, you're like, do you know so-and-so? And I was, for example, I was at Lollapalooza. And I met a guy, I've heard his name numerous times, and I met him for the first time in Lollapalooza with, you know, another 100,000 of my closest friends. Uh, and we swapped stories of who we knew and in our experiences and laughed about it. And, and within three or five minutes became very close. And now, you know, it's it's three days later and, and we're communicating via email and getting together next week. So um, I think the um, overall connectivity of Miami is incredibly strong. Um, and, but I think the one thing that we need to focus on as a group, just on the, the, um, constructive side is how do you drive all those positive thoughts and attributes and, you know, the formation of who you are as a person started at Miami mm. and how do you drive that sentiment and that love and, uh, respect for it back to helping Miami you know, make the next crop of people that feel the same way that the 30 to 60 year olds do here in, in Chicago. So um, I think that's, that's the, you know, the pay it forward aspect of life that we need to do and, and make sure that the next group has the same connectivity, uh, the same, wow, astonishing, outstanding, uh, well-accomplished people that they've met and, and can continue that to the next couple of generations. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about that because I know, Miami spends a good bit of time taking students up, and there's so many businesses in Chicago with Miamians that are willing to open doors and offer couple-day internships or, or day-long seminars. But you're right, the pay-it-forward uh, method in the future, of how do you take that and multiply it by 10? You've got a top five, top three business city in the United States and one where, gosh, I would love to see the stats of number of Miamians per capita in employment versus other universities, something that we should all double down on. Absolutely. I mean, that would be a great stat because I think it would be remarkable, but I think it would be remarkable not only in a positive, but also in the eye opening that there's so many more here that you didn't even know were here. Um, but I, I think it, I think that there's, there's, you know, there is credence in the saying that age brings wisdom. And um, as you look back, of what you've done in your career and you get a chance to have a career that's got, you know, maybe two decades into it, you know, you start taking retrospective moments and looking back at what you did and why you did it. And I think the reason why the, you know, 40 year olds and maybe 50 and 60 year olds are motivated to, get people to focus on Miami again is because they look back on their times at Miami and without a doubt, Miami is the foundation of who I am today. And there's, there's no doubt about it. And so I don't think when, when we were 20 or 30, we were really you know, doing any retrospective looks into who we are and what made us. Um, maybe there's some forks in the road that you remember that were um, paramount decisions going left or right. But as a whole, you know, who you are and where you came from is really kind of, you know, it, it's the bedrock of why you're as successful today or why you're accomplished or why you have the friends you do or the wife you do or the family you do. And I think the 50 year olds, the forties and 60 year olds are the ones that are, are driving that where, um, I think, you know, you need to kind of pay it forward to the, the, the younger group to say, Hey, you know, think about who you are and why you are, what you are mm. and wh- where'd you get that? 
And, and then if it, if it lands on like all the, everybody else here that uh, walks away with that, then, then we can, we can activate a whole other group of people and make it even stronger. And speaking of forks in a road, when you were a senior at Miami a few years ago, uh, <laughs> what, uh, me too, uh, what, what, what was the fork? Where, where were you thinking about going? Um, what did you want to do when you were 21 years old? Um, it's, uh, I remember the exact moment, uh, I was in skippers. Uh, it Perfect. was the second, it was the second year skippers was open or they opened our, our junior year. Um, we became close friends with Terry and Colleen and Kevin. Um, and we, we just bonded with him and I was quizzing him about being an entrepreneur. And at the time I wasn't really quizzing him about being, you know, an entrepreneur. I just like, why did you decide to own your own business? Uh, we're, uh, what made you do it? Your dad was in the business and how'd you get into it? Why'd you take this path versus other paths? And, and it, 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 just his responses, to the group of friends I was with, which quite a few of you know, um, we were, he gave us his, his commentary and then he walked away and he did his job and then it stuck with us and we were talking and we were, uh, somewhere in like the latter parts of our senior year and we all had choices on jobs and we were interviewing and whatnot. And I, I, I went the normal route. Like most people in Miami did. I went to this uh, career plan placement office and, but I was one of those individuals that, um, I, I, I still am. You, you got to learn. You got to figure out how you learn. Right. And my learning process has always been learning out loud and by talking to people and in conversations and meeting more people and asking them who they know that's better or an expert in that topic. And so um, going, I put myself down to the career placement planning office a lot. And, you know, my guidance counselor down there was, was, was not really, you know, want to spend that much time with me, but I started chatting up the, the assistants and the admins and whatnot and understanding why our companies were coming in there and whatnot. And so I had a pretty good roster of, and they were, you know, kind to me and put me on interviews and whatnot. And I had a pretty good roster of uh, companies that gave me an offer, but um, I also kind of flipped the switch uh, when I was 20 and I started interviewing my brother's friends and my sister's friends to figure out what jobs they had because they were three and four years older than I was. So my, my brother actually went to Miami as well. Mm-hmm. Part of, you know, a, a part of the uh, reason, one of the reasons why I went to Miami. Um, but, um, and in the interview process, I, you know, interviewed probably 20 or so people and I narrowed it down to 10 that I thought I had really interesting jobs. And in that process, um, going back to skippers, I narrowed it down to one opportunity that was completely out of the norm. I was a finance major. Um, all my off opportunities were finance or insurance or, you know, you know, huge training programs, uh, you know, as people call it today, which I think is not fair, but big co and going down that path. And, um, I had taken, uh, the path of interviewing one of my brother's friends that led me to, um, a job in Los Angeles and with, with, uh, Toyota motor sales and, and the start of the Lexus automotive division at the time it didn't have a name. They just called it, uh, uh, circle C, uh, cause it was like the project name. And I remember sitting in skippers. And after Terry said that we, the, there are four of us sitting there and I said, do I want to go through the standard route and, and, and go through the giant training program or do I want to kind of take the pass unpaved and go move to Los Angeles at the time? 
you know, as you remember, there, most everybody was kind of going to the tri-state or maybe Chicago or, or maybe the East Coast. And uh, no one was going out west. And I, I was I was nervous. I'd, I'd never been out west. And uh, and we decided right then and there with my friends. Uh, that, and they said, hey, what do you have to lose? You know, move to L.A. It's a great opportunity with a big company uh, in a um, new division. And they, you know, the word startup really wasn't used back then, but it, it was a startup within a company, you know, a big company. And uh, it was it was the path unpaved and the idea of moving to Los Angeles, um, trying something different and new. I always knew I could come back and, and go back to the Midwest if I so choose. And we did, I did right then and there. We, I decided in Skippers that I was going to pivot and, and go and move to Los Angeles. And I, I actually moved to Los Angeles two days after I graduated Miami. I had zero summer. I moved right there. I feel like that's the mic drop moment on Beyond High Street. 75 pods, and finally someone has used skippers as the, the motivation and the decision of where they went to work. Besides just having pops, I mean, I, I feel we owe it now all back to Terry and Andy. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. And how, how long uh, did you stick out, stick around in LA? I was out there for roughly just under seven years. Mm. Um, great. It was incredible. Interesting enough. Um, <clears throat> as you, as you look through, you know, what Miami brings to people, the guy that started it, uh, that was the president of the division went and grabbed, um, well, actually was based, <clears throat> he was from the Midwest. He went back to the Midwest and hired one individual out of every Midwestern school. Hmm. So we had, there were 12 of us originally hired. He was smart enough to realize that if 12 Midwesterners came out there, they might lose their minds and, and, and spin off into outer space with what was offered to them in Los Angeles. He brought in two native uh, Southern California guys and then 10 others that were from all from the Midwest. So like, you know, the Ohio state, it was UC, it was Xavier. It was, uh, you know, Denison, it was it was unique. smart in the yeah really smart. We, we had a lot. I mean, yeah. we had a lot of fun. We were immediately connected. Huh. And after seven years, what did you learn that you didn't like at Toyota or Lexus or something <clears throat> that with whatever was going to be number your second or third job that you did not want to do again? Well, I was out there, and um, so we we launched the brand. Uh, and there's a ton of work that we were handed responsibilities at a young, at 23, that looking back, I had no, no business being involved with or being in charge of zero. Um, I remember doing, uh, filling out like a dis distribution supply chain document on my desk and uh, we went to lunch and when I came back, it wasn't there anymore. And it's not like it is today where you know, everything's on your computer. We were actually physically drawing it out on my desk on, on Mylar paper and whatnot. And when I came back, they had a all atrium announcement for the entire Toyota motor sales company where they were presenting my supply chain distribution map as, as one of the pivotal items in it. <laughs> and, and with no knowledge it was happening or whatnot. And I was like, uh, you know, thank God we were, you know, we were had the Midwestern ethic and Miami trained us to actually take on responsibilities you know, from start to finish and completed a hundred percent. And they presented it when we walked back from lunch and all of a sudden the, the entire company was looking at what we had, you know, me and my, my, 
QB partner had been put together. Uh, I, um, I bet your heartbeat was racing a little bit then. I, I was, I was, I was nervous thinking, well, you know, shouldn't my boss see this first? But he's like, no, you guys are, you guys are in charge. So that was fun. But to answer your, your question, um, we got promoted. So we did all the back work to get the, uh, the, uh, brand launched and anything from look and feel, how do you treat a customer? Um, what is the interaction? How are you going to go pick dealers? I mean, my, one of my first jobs, which you'll see comes full circle was to go after we did all the imagery and look and feel and how we're going to, what's the culture going to be like within the dealerships, within the corporate. Um, we had to go hit the road and find people that'd be willing to invest, you know, millions of dollars in a picture of a facility and a picture of a car. Mm. And, and so we did, so that was the job. And then once we had all these dealers signed up, we had to move out to the to respective regions and, um, you know, service them and get them up in operation and start getting them selling cars and whatnot. So, um, but the, the pivotal moment of what made me leave, uh, a big company, I remember to this day, I was, um, I had done a, done a, uh, stint as, as one of the positions in like a, the staff management job and, and I'd finished my stint and they're like, okay, you're promoted. You're moving over to this department. And then the individual behind me came in and I was doing my new job. And after about six months, my boss came to me and said, Hey, would you mind taking that job back over? And I, and I thought originally it was like something I was doing in my new job because no, 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 you're doing fantastic in your new job, but you did a great job there too. And, and we need your help and someone to do this job because we're going to move him out. He's not succeeding in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's not a problem. And I said, you know, we have great people that were, uh, this a sport team that was working. I said, we can, we can do both of them. And so we did, um, for about six months, we did both jobs and we were, you know, the first ones in and the last ones to leave. Cause we had two jobs we had to do and we were grinding it out. Um, but, uh, the budget cycle came back up and when it came back up, I asked him, I said, Hey, w would it be okay? Um, that if we're not going to hire this person back and I, cause I saw the budgeting in the line on and there was no, uh, compensation, uh, allocated towards that position. I said, can we give some of the uh, allocated compensation to the team because they're working from bell to bell. And, and, and he said, we'll make a proposal. So I made a proposal. I thought that, you know, it probably makes sense for the company to save some money and, and then whatever the other half we would give to the team. And when they came back, instead of having two digits on a percentage increase to give to the team, it had one really small digit. And, and this was my, my, this boss I had worked with my, it was my mentor. And I knew if he couldn't get it done, and we were doing all the output in the company. I realized right then and there, I'm like, oh my gosh, it doesn't matter about your output. It doesn't matter what the job you're doing. It matters that you got to stay in the corporate hierarchy and the bands and whatnot. And that exact moment I looked around, I'm like, this isn't for me. I said, I, I want to be compensated on the output of what I was doing. And prior to that, I had been because they moved you through if you were, you know, you're, uh, um, reviewed as a team. And if you're shined as one of the lead team members, you got promoted, promoted, promoted. So that was great. And I was always one of the youngest, uh, in every one of the positions I'd ever gone through. But at that point in time, I realized it wasn't about the output. It was just about staying in, in line. And I'm like, that's it. That was when I decided it was time to leave and, and, and kind of strike out in a different career. So the, the desire to be compensated <clears throat> on output is, is a great line. 
and certainly key to your role at Marco's Pizza, where you were there for 10 years before kind of your latest gig that's going on. So tell me, I mean, from what I remember, when you when you started at Marco's Pizza, a couple hundred stores, maybe, but ultimately up to hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand um, during your 10 year run. Um, yeah, we, uh, I left, uh, uh, that previous, um, opportunity and then got into more of the marketing side of, of business. Cause, uh, part of, I had one foot in with Lexus in helping do partnerships like with Eric Clapton and Joffrey Ballet and coach leather and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I wanted to kind of pivot and get more into um, just straight full line marketing and getting out of this, this, the sales responsibility uh, for this time being because I wanted to understand the strategic side of that. And uh, so we, I jumped in with a company that was backed by Clear Channel. And we ended up starting doing results-oriented marketing. And it took off and had a couple of different iterations. Uh, Clear Channel got out of that, uh, and they went all to their media side. And then I, I um, took my clients, because they, they literally got out of the business, and started my own company. Um, and then with that... Um, we were doing, you know, most of what we were doing is going back to the automotive clients I had and say, hey, listen, I know your process as well as you do, because I've been there for um, almost close to 10 years. We can help you design and do marketing. Uh, and that has more impact. It, we can communicate it down through every level and then we can measure everything we did. And because of that, it actually got me into franchising. And I met, I met, uh, I responded to an RFP of, um, for what was Yorkshire global restaurants, which was a and W and long John silvers, which yeah. are both, both are on the demise now. Um, and so we use the same metrics and whatnot to help them grow franchising and get people to raise their hands and, and that were, had an entrepreneurial spirit and bent and wanted to own their own business. And that flourished, which then flourished into uh, Yum buying them. Yum, today's Yum Brands bought them. And then we went to Yum and did the same thing for them. And then we ended up doing the same thing because um, I wanted to prove that the approach would work with any, I mean, Yum is the world's largest franchisor. So I wanted to shift gears and see if we could do it for smaller uh, groups. And so we did it for Dunkin' Donuts Worldwide, Togo, Fast Signs, Bob's Big Boy. Um, we did it for Subway regionally, Quiznos nationally. Um, and it worked. And everything, we, it, we, our process was working and bringing a new approach to it. And and then one of those clients became Marco's Pizza. Mm. And and so um, I, I was the guy that brought me in originally on the RFP. Um, I, I, I became really close to him and I said, Hey, Brian, could we come up to it when the Bears Packers played in the opening of the new Soldier Field? Now it's old Soldier Field, but uh, I said, Can we go to a game? And I want to talk to you about something. So we went to Soldier Field and I said, I, I think what you've done with your knowledge of franchising and what I've done on the marketing side, we could combine forces and go into some of these emerging brands and help them uh, franchise with our knowledge and our ability to bring people in, take them through the, <clears throat> excuse me, the sales process and all the way through to turning the key and then hand them back over to the, uh, the corporate office. And then they would do the marketing and the operations of it. And he's like, what do you have in mind? So we drew up a plan and he's like, well, great. Cause I, I, I want to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial out of yum. Uh, would you get out of your marketing company? 
And I said, you know what? I've got two great lieutenants that can run it and I'll help out a little bit when I can, but I want to throw my heart into this because, um, at the same time, my marketing company was all project based. Mm-hmm. And so, um, nothing was reoccurring revenues. Uh, so I'm like, if we could design something that had annuity based to it, um, that would be something that would be more of a long-term play for my family and I, so you can you know, continue, uh, reaping the benefits of the work you put in today somewhere down the road. So Marcos was the, we put it, we, we both formed a company and Marcos was our first client. Uh, we got in, there's 139 stores. Um, and, uh, just, you know, and, and, oh, by the way, we got in in uh, 06. So, you know, <laughs> 18 months later, yep. um, everything fell off the cliff. Uh, um, but, uh, we, we persevered. We actually were, pretty creative and doing some unique things where, uh, we, we knew if we could continue to grow during a recession, um, we would come out the other side and banks would be willing to finance anything and everything we touched. So we ended up mortgaging our homes a second time. Whoa. Yeah. And creating a lease pool, a leasing pool that the, that, that the franchisees could borrow against. And we would backstop some of the royalties, um, from the, uh, the franchisor. So the banks would see, uh, and they leveraged it up a little bit too. And so that they could see that we could still grow. And then we could get, we had like 37 or 42, uh, franchisees that were in the pipeline. We're like, we're not going to let these individuals not grow. They want to grow and they'll do a great job. And so during that two, two and a half year, uh, run, we continued to grow using our leasing pool. And then once once a little bit of the dark clouds parted, and the banks were willing to uh, take a look at franchising again. They saw that we were one of the few. They actually uh, really accelerated. And they're like, and, and then we from there, we had uh, banks knocking on our door, and, they, and that kind of fueled or turned the corner of what we needed to do to uh, really accelerate to 150 or 140 stores a year that we were putting up. At one point in time, we were putting a store. We were opening a store every uh, two and a half days. So we obviously could spend hours just on the segment of franchising, but for, give me uh, the 101. Give me the three points because every single person has walked down to their, and you mentioned a few of them, the Long John Silvers, the Dunkin' Donuts, the Marcos, the, any, any one of their favorite quick service restaurants or convenience stores and said, oh my gosh, if we had one on this corner, we would crush it. So what, what are those three things that uh, in a top line are must-haves for a franchise to actually work? Um, what, whatever you're offering has to be craveable. It has to be the foundation of what you're bringing to the table. It's food. It has to, you have to be offering something that people love. And so that's, that's number one. It's gotta be something that people will stand in line for. Um, when we're looking at bringing brands on with, with our company, it's, it, we look at, you know, is the foundation of the business something that people are willing to stand in line and is a damn good product. And, and it could be a service product. It could be like, you know, cleaning your ducks or something like that. It's just got to be a service that is is phenomenal, whether it's food or actual service or whatnot. But the, people walk away going, that was a great experience. Um, that's number one. Number two is unit economics. Within the four walls or within, if it's a business-to-business scenario, it's got to have a great unit economics on sales-to-investment ratio, uh, profit margins, uh, um, you know, 
uh, the, your early entry is it, is, it, is it too hard, too robust to get into? So just you know, the overall unit economics, how much money can I make out of it, it is number two. And number three on, on the 101 scale would be, does it have a defensible niche? Hmm. Me, meaning, is something you've done or created is it unique enough and, and you could call your own where somebody else could replicate it for uh, fewer dollars, be very similar, and within two years, you could have a thousand brands that are copycats that look really similar to yours. And I'll tell you, the, the, one of the reasons why Marcos did so well um, was exactly that. One, it had a defensible niche. All the other pizza players at the time, the top 30 so this is even going down to like 120 units. Um, no one else was making their product with fresh dough, fresh cheese, and fresh sauce daily. Hmm. So we, we had a fresh product. And if, you know, if anybody's a baker, they'll know that anything fresh versus frozen is dramatically uh, different in taste profiles. So that was number one. Number two, we had a founder that was from Italy and, and, and brought his uh, grandmother's recipes over. And utilize those and the, the love and joy of cooking. So we were truly authentic uh, Italian versus you know most of the other certainly top uh, twenty brands were you know, U.S. based individuals. And number three, um, our sales to investment ratio and our top line sales and our ability to make profit was was outstanding. And those three things were you know the jettison. Uh, or the, the, really the gas that uh, jettisoned us further ahead. And, and I would say the fourth thing would be um, uh, we just, we outworked people. I mean, it was franchi- franchising is, today it's different than it was 10 years ago. Now private equity is into it. Now people that are graduating from any of the top schools are coming into it because uh, it's, it's millennial-centric. You can own your own business. It's process-oriented. You, you can, in a very short period of time, you can have three to five stores and you can have an empire of you know top-line revenue of a couple million dollars that you're sitting on top of and you could be 20 five years old. Um, and Oh, by the way, your exit strategy now is, you know, a, a work, a Catterton, a, a Carp Riley that is coming down and buying revenue streams because they have contracts against it. And if it's, if the foundation of the brand is solid, um, then you know, it, it's, it's a multiple that you get, get off your revenue streams. That's extremely lucrative. So now it's, 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 you know, I think only uh, I read a stat recently that only uh, 6% of all businesses started are franchise business. So there's 94%, but you know, the 6% that started about a franchise business is every year are, you know, on, you know, if they're successful and get out of the gate in, in, in our, uh, um, you know, on people's radar for uh, some of the elements I mentioned before, private equity is already looking at them. I mean, they, uh, they'll, they'll look they buy chains that have three to four stores. So it's, it's, it's a great way to go. And it's, it's different, completely different uh, from where it was 10 years ago. Where is today? How, how as, as delivery becomes more and more uh, mm. into the world we live and you see some startups uh, talking about a singular uh, physical location that houses multiple restaurants, almost just storefronts. And then I guess Uber Eats or anybody can go to those places and pick up food from three or four different types of food. Is that is that something that's going to be 
commonplace? Does that affect franchising in the future, or is that just a piece of the equation? Well, there's there's a lot of answers to that. One, uh, this it's changing the industry for sure. Um, it's changing. One, uh, it's so uh, you know early in the game of what effect this is going to have. I mean, as, as you read everything on it, it's everybody's saying that we are in the first or second inning of this and the effect it'll have. Hmm. Um, so it, it, the jury's still out really on what effects it, it ultimately will have. And, and if you look at, um, you know, some of the prognosticators, they're saying that, um, you know, this will drive real estate prices massively down. Because you don't have to have Maine and Maine anymore. Mm. You could put one store on Maine and Maine in, let's say, Milwaukee, but then you can flank the entire Milwaukee uh, metropolitan area with 10 stores that are, you know, you'll never see. Mm-hmm. But you'll be able to get delivery from it. So, and, and right today, three out of five Americans order food online per month. So, so through Grubhub and, and it's it's all different sources. It's not, you know, not, but you know we own restaurants also in our portfolio. And last month alone, sixty four percent of our uh, gross revenue was through third party delivery. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it has to, it has to be. Uh, there will be adaptations. You will have. You, you've seen all the big boys like Taco Bell and Chipotle and and others. They're partnering with Grubhub and DoorDash and whatnot to make. Uh, so the synergies are there. One and two, it lowers their cost that they have to give uh, to the third party delivery, but it also makes it so in the long run. You know, who knows? They may be partners. They may be purchased. So there will be a convergence of uh, this thing, but it's way too early to tell. But real estate will be the first to be affected because landlords cannot demand what they have. If you can flank a metropolitan area with one flagship store and then 10 others that are in, you know, a warehouse district, and you're just cranking out deliveries. I will. Uh, you mentioned Chipotle. I will, I'm having Brian Nickel, also, uh, as you know, a fellow Miami alum, CEO of mm-hmm. Chipotle. He'll, he's going to be on the pod in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to have to dig into that subject with him on the future in real estate. It's really interesting. You, you got to ask him uh, specifically. They've got a great uh, program going on now. They just turned 1,700 stores to artificial intelligence. Hmm. So when you call an order, it's it's not a human anymore. Um, and so they're testing with 1,700 stores, but he, he, he's doing a great job of pushing the envelope. And he, you know as well as I do, we have a few, few friends and Miamians that are sitting on top of the AI world as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So to, as we wind down here for a second and we go all the way back to the path unpaved, to the 18-year-old going to Miami, to the 21-year-old leaving Miami, or quite frankly, to the 25, 35, or 45-year-old who is thinking about a job switch or what's next. Just go a little deeper on the unpaved path and um, the risk of that versus the reward um, and, and what people should be thinking about as they decide what they want to do next um you know the the unpaid path to me was always um a incredibly guided 
decision in that I knew in each one of the career moves I did that I knew the process or the, the subject matter better than most everybody out there. In each one of the moves I made when I switched and went from Lexus to a marketing company, well, I knew I could call back on the uh, uh, automotive industry and say, listen, I just spent 10 years. I know exactly how the program works. I know your three-tier system. I know how to get a great idea penetrating through all three levels. I will, we will go, we'll, we'll handle each of the elements you have that are roadblocks to having best in class marketing and bringing conquest buyers into your dealerships. So I, I knew it. And so, um, and then as you switched and went to, uh, you know, marketing into fr- franchising. I knew that we could bring more people into franchising because no one in the franchise space was doing the sophisticated algorithm marketing, was was uh, uh, doing all the different channels of marketing, doing an ROI on each offer they gave them to bring them into franchising, um, and then measured it and then tweaked according uh, accordingly to it. Um, so every time I made a shift, and then like currently with PGP and Pivotal Growth Partners, um, the reason why we started that is because we just proved that with Marco's Pizza, if you put the processes and procedures in place, everything we do is automated. Um, and so we could take, if we wanted to, literally 10 brands and run it through this process because the process is proven. We've, we sat and watched it grow with Marco's. We have all the customization of the software that we put to, uh, in place over the years. We know all the people that are great operators around the country. Not all of them, but the ones we like. Um, so I, I guess the reason I always say path unpaved, it's, it's really um, – it's, it's kind of like going on an expedition. Um, you've done it, all your homework. You've got all the gear you need. You've tested your gear, um, and, and, you, and you've got all the navigational support. You've got plans B, C, and D as far as if there's issues. So you're going on the path unpaved, but you're really, well, you're really knowledgeable in what you're about to get into and that you have the highest success, chance for success. So that's, to me, and, 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 and people have always said it back to me, I've always been able to find the riches and the niches because I've been the guy that's been zigging while everybody else is zagging. I've created our own, you know, entities, each one of the places I've gone. Um, but, uh, you know, you and I sat together and talked in in some of these, uh, pitch classes for uh, the farmer school with Tim and, and, in doing so, you know, my advice to somebody that's looking to change jobs or they're 21 years old is get into a company, figure out what the company's doing. And then with every company, there's always a pain point. There's always something, God, I wish if we had that, or I wish this ran smoother. Well, there's your opportunity. Cause I knew in each one of the places I went, there's always a wrinkle. Something didn't flow the way it should have. And they were like, well, you know, if I could just quit my job and spend time doing that, I could get that resolved and then we'd be, we'd be much better off. And so I would say that it, whether it's big co, whether you've got an idea, uh, you know, uh, in your, in a startup mode or whatnot, you know, make sure that it's a pain point for somebody else, some other company, whatnot, and it resolves an issue and you've done all the research on it and you've thrown yourself into it. And maybe you've even, you're even in big co and you're like, Hey, 
I know I'm going to go start this and do it like on the side, so to speak, not like uh, have parallel jobs, but, you know, research it at night, spend the time with talking to people that are actually trying to solve this and get a really good understanding so that if you're saying I'm going to leave, but uh, Mr. Big Co, I'm going to bring the solution to the one wrinkle you have. I mean, my first entrepreneurial job when I left Lexus and went to these, uh, uh, you know, results oriented marketing company that was backed by Clear Channel. My first client the next day was was Lexus because I went right back to him and I said, "Listen, I know you have this issue. I I witnessed it and stopped all of our success, um, or diminished it greatly. I'm going to do this." And they signed me up. I literally were the first client 24 hours later. So to me, I never, I, I would never tell anybody mortgage your house or do whatnot and take a gamble on something you think is going to work. Get in there and figure out that it's going to work. And oh, by the way, you've got clients that need this today because there's a pain point. And then, you know, if that's the way you're going to go, then, then, you know, Go for it. But I will say, um, and you and I have talked about this, I don't think if, if you're a 21-year-old, I think every 21-year-old should go to a big co. I think the training they teach you at big co's, the business acumen, the exposure, um, you don't know what you really want. Think that as you get a huge company in front of you and you get to do a training program and you rotate through it, there may be 20 stops. It, two of those 20 are going to really appeal to you. And then you're going to say, I want to go in this direction. And then you get more and more in that direction. And guess what? In a period of time, that's your career. Now, if you jump outside of Big Co and start something that's in that, in that career line, that's great. But you wouldn't have known that unless you spent the time to plug into Big Co, go through the training and do all that. So um, I'm, I'm a fan of making sure you get great exposure uh, through great training and other people have it. And, and then you can make your career decisions as a, as a 21 year old. Cam crushed it as I knew he would. That uh, That's a longer pod than we're used to. I hope everyone stuck with it. I couldn't end the conversation. There was just too much great content and conversation and the interesting background of franchising I find really different. We just don't talk about it that much in today's world, but he gives great tips for students and for young professionals. Hope everyone takes that to heart. Hope you all enjoyed the pod. Thanks for listening and sharing with fellow Miamians. Hope everyone enjoys the rest of the summer. See you at Skippers real soon. See ya.